1: so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Is hair a material? Our biscuits a material? Our crystals a material?
2: Is plastic a material?
1: Is porridge a material? Can
0: gases be a material? Our eggs a material? Is water a material?
2: What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. You guys <laughs> did And yet you continue to do so. Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. As always, I'm your host Anna Pojaisky and this episode I talked to stonemason Andrew Ziminski about stone. As you'll hear, Andrew is based in Somerset and earlier this year published a book called The Stonemason, which is all about his career working with the material that really tells the history of Britain but in buildings. This conversation was recorded before the UK coronavirus lockdown, if you can cast your mind back to such a time. Um, And I went to go and visit Andrew to really see and experience more about what he does as a stonemason. So we sat down in the afternoon of my visit to have this conversation, but you'll hear Andrew referring back to some of our adventures from earlier that day. A small piece of housekeeping before we start. Um, I'm very sorry about the rumbling of the microphone in this recording. Um, not sure what was going on there, but hopefully not too distracting. Um, and also, there is some background noise, which is mostly as a result of Andrew's um, really adorable dog called Nutmeg. Do you want to be on the podcast, Nutmeg? Nutmeg? No. <laughs> Anyway, I started by asking Andrew how he became interested in working with stone.
1: Well, I'd always been interested in um, working with stone structures. That doesn't sound too eccentric from a young age. but My, my dad was a stonemason for a while in Scotland working in granite quarries in the Highlands. Uh, he was making uh, the sort of mouths, to so hydroelectric schemes. Um, and I like the permanency of what he had created like 30 or 40 years before. Um, and I'd always had an interest in archaeology and it, uh, I thought it would be good to combine the two somehow. So earning a living as a stonemason that works in a traditional fashion on uh, ancient buildings and monuments um, just seemed a, a natural path. So, mm. so I, you know, I faffed around for a few years Um waiting for the right opportunity to come up um, but the, something that really grabbed me was when I was a child or, or an early teenager was uh, they were taking down a timber frame structure in our town um, uh, they were going to put a budget in the supermarket there so they uh, instead of just demolishing it uh, it was considered to be important and they took it down uh, and took it to the and Downer Museum in uh, Singleton in West Sussex And I was involved in taking this thing apart and I was completely gripped. I just wanted to know everything about this uh, late 16th century structure, you know, where the, um, where the timbers had come from, how old they were when they were felled, how had the stones that were not native to the town, um, how are the stones, the window mullions and the great fireplace, um, how had they got there on roads that were only used by kings and, you know uh, armies uh, you know all that sort of stuff Mm. so it just just lit a fire within so the the years slipped by and um, when the opportunity came on the reconstruction of the Rygate house um, I just packed in my crummy job and um, received an education so Mick the Mason there um, he was a real grand chap and he he his life was like a Thomas Hardy character plot line. And he was a, you know, he was a proper man of Sussex. And uh, he, he basically taught me everything I needed to know, how to slake lime, how to work a flat surface, how to dress stone, the importance of using the right tools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then I went to Weymouth College, did a stone course, Salisbury Cathedral. Yeah, I haven't looked back, you know. Uh, so we've been running our small business, Minerva Stone Conservation, in uh, Froome in Somerset for, oh, getting on for 30 years now. So,
2: mm. yeah. And you've just written a book about stone.
1: I have, yeah. It's um, yeah, It's got a bit of a corny title. It's called The Stonemason. Um, yeah, it's doing really well. It's got some good reviews, Excellent. which I'm pleased by. Uh, yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, flying off the shelves at Waterstones, as we speak. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but it's all about your sort of... I suppose it's drawing on your life's work, really, as a stonemason and spending time around this material and the and the buildings that it's built from.
1: Yeah, well, I wanted to write a uh, history of Britain told through the eyes of a craftsperson and the knowledge of a craftsperson. And it, it seemed to me that so many histories of Britain, especially architectural histories, are written by um, academics, great you know i read all these these have edu- you know these mm. have educated me um and journalists and uh, i thought well why you know working people the, the actual builders themselves don't don't write about these things and i thought well mm. who who am i to do that and then i thought well stuff it why why should i not yeah so uh, yeah and that, and that was the attraction for the publishers john murray's who mm. uh the oldest publisher in Britain. Oh, really? Yeah, they published Origin of the Species.
2: What? And, uh, yeah. That's cool.
1: Jane Austen. and
2: yeah, <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Cool. Esteemed company then. Esteemed company indeed. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's an architectural chronology okay. starting at the um, first um, structure that could be considered to be architecture. Um, so this is the West Kennet Long Barrow where we did some work quite a few years ago now. What's so interesting about the West Kennet Long Barrows is that before the stones that created the internal chambers were put up, uh, these stones were actually used as axe polishing blocks for oh, wow. uh, flint axes. So basically the, wood, the, the, the woods that were cleared uh, to create land for agriculture um, were cleared using axes. And to increase the efficiency of these axes, you would hone them on the nearest available stone, so that's sarsen stone. Um, so that so sarsen stone create the big trilithons um, that we see at Stonehenge that we're also familiar with. the The stones that came from Wales are much smaller. So, I've always had a fascination with Stonehenge and how it was built, mm-hmm. um, the engineering that came together to create this place. Um, you know, it was the first prehistoric monument that was built with architecture in mind and what i mean when i say what i mean when i say that is um it has mortise and tenon joints to hold the sections together carpentry joints it is tongue groove joints on the butts of each horizontal stone to stop you know um stop them falling off mm. i mean these stones the horizontal lintels weigh 20 tons each. They're going nowhere. So it's an un- an unnecessary piece of engineering.
2: Oh, really? Belts
1: and braces and, yeah, um, yeah another belt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, so then I go through uh, to Roman times. We've done a lot of work in the Roman baths in Bath on the uh, uh, temple uh, pediment dedicated to the local Celtic deity, Sulis, and mm. the Roman equivalent, Minerva. Um, and then from then on, it's, you know, the Anglo-Saxon church that we went to earlier, mm-hmm. um, St. Lawrence's, and um, through through the Gothic into pre-First uh, pre, uh, pre- First World War. So the reason I cut off at the First World War is that's when the use of building line effectively stopped. Modern cements and concretes were, were used in... Um, Mass building mm. and housing, and um, I just you know I don't really know cements. I know old-fashioned limes mm. and old-fashioned methods and um, materials.
2: yeah yeah, so so the the common theme then is that all of those places that you mentioned are built with stone, mm-hmm. um, what did you notice what 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 else was the continuation really throughout that apart from the material itself, what about the techniques and the toolings?
1: Oh, that's a that's a tricky question. So, for, you know, from prehistoric times, I, you know, it's great to start at West Kennet, which is a very basic time type type of structure. It's basically two uprights um, and some corbelling. So, corbelling is where one stone sits on an upright, and then another stone sits on top of that to project forward, and then you put a, a lintel over the top. Um, so that then carries on to something more sophisticated at Stonehenge, you know. So we're looking at an evolution of of architectural form, um, and then how that post and lintel method of construction was used by the uh, ancient Greeks, mm. um, obviously by the Romans, and in in the um, Roman temple complex around the Roman Baths in Bath, you know, it's just quite extraordinary to consider that they were importing these. Uh, techniques from the Mediterranean world, uh, you know, the uh, apogee of civilization to the to the frontiers of the empire, and that you know, it's a real sophisticated building um, or, or set of buildings there. Mm. So I love that passing on of the baton through the generations with um, the Saxon Chapel in Bradford on Avon. You know, you can see a lot of neoclassical, uh, a lot of classical. Um, uh, influences on that but there's also a big uh, surprisingly a big Syrian uh, influence or mm. work there um cause the archbishop of canterbury at the time that was built or just before decreed that church it would be big, would be better if churches were built in stone and the saxons had a tradition of building in timber mm.
2: and this was in the 7th century was
1: it yeah so uh, bishop yeah, Tarsus was yeah. in the seventh century. So the, the the building there is of the tenth century. Okay. And there's an uh, but there's an earlier structure there, maybe mm. footing, they think. Um. But the but the double portico, which is basically a big porch on either side of the nave, mm. the very tall nave, is a is a Syrian uh, uh, architectural concept, which is like that's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> you know?
2: So around that time. Presumably for, for that Syrian architectural influence to have reached the west of England. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that would have required the travelling of craftspeople yeah. and their expertise. What what other crafts were going on at that time? Is is that an unusual spread of knowledge or or was that sort of the time when all sorts of different craftspeople were were sort of disseminating their work?
1: Yeah, good good question. And well, the joy of St Lawrence's in Bradford on, Bradford on Avon is that it stands alone. There are very few uh, Anglo-Saxon stone buildings, and the ones that do remain are in r- pretty ruinous form. Mm. But the joy of St Lawrence's is its completeness. Um, but the Sa- you know, as as you know, the Saxons built in timber. That was their material of choice. Um, mm. So I think that the masons who built, uh, who, who built that, hadn't. You know, there wasn't a handing on at the baton from Roman times. This is a building that's a pretty much appeared from nowhere. Oh
2: wow! Okay. I think so. Yeah. I think
1: masons have come in from certainly from Europe, mm. maybe from further afield. Um, you know. But, big waves of migration going in with, you know, the advent of Islam. Mm. Um, Tarsus arrived here because of the arrival of Islam in Syria and he, you know, he made his way, mm. made his way to British <laughs> Isles. You yeah. Know. Um, his um, associates, um, his sort of right-hand man was a guy called Hadrian who was a North African Berber. Mm. So, you know, uh, Anglo-Saxons were surprisingly cosmopolitan at the, you know, Uh, higher levels of society. Mm,
2: Interesting, (laughs) fascinating. Um, We've been talking about stone as if it's one material. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Of course, stone is, is a whole collection of different materials. So can we hear about sort of the different... Actual materials that we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, so um, we had a bit of time in the workshop earlier, yeah. didn't we? And uh, we had a we had a mess around with some uh, sarsen stone. Uh, you know, so we were talking about with the West Kennet Long Barrow and Stonehenge, which is an incredibly dense um, sandstone. Mm. It's just, it's a silica cemented sandstone and i I knew I met a guy once who was a he'd been a sarsen worker and he said it was the hardest stone known to man and you know you had a little a little punch of that with mm. uh, with a hammer and it you know unforgiving stuff that's yeah, go, that's absolutely. going nowhere yeah um but that that is not the sort of stone that you would use regularly for building um you would use in our part of the world limestones. Bath stones, mm. that you know, that type of thing, and those are stones that can even be sawn with a conventional wood saw. They're so soft oh, wow, and really? forgiving. Yeah, yeah. so the, com- completely the opposite of um, of the sarsen stone. Mm. And then we had a little go on some old red sandstone, and that was, you know, again, that was that was tough. Mm. Interestingly, that was an older type of stone. Um, that's a tri- Triassic uh, sequence stone to the sarsen. But again, that behaves a little more like the um, like the limestone. Um, so you know, in my day to day life, I generally just work limestone. So that can be bath stone <clears throat> that we all know from the city of Bath and um, hamstones, which is a very ochreous stone you find near Yeovil uh, and the West Country, and of course Portland stone. Something I'm really interested in is how stones have been transported around the country. So I have an idea that sarsen stone um, was not dragged by fur-clad savages across open downland, across marshes. You know, the idea is dragging 30 ton stones uh, mm. for 20 odd miles is, you know, is just nonsense. They, they, there is a very straightforward path from the Marlborough Downs to the head of the River Avon. And then it's just direct to Stonehenge. Just right. goes there in a pretty much a straight line down the river. Down the river, yeah. So um, they'd have put that on a raft, and um, yeah, water table was a lot higher then, three meters higher in the wow. late Neolithic. So the rivers would have been broader and deeper and right. more more useful than the little River Avon we see now. <laughs> but you can see the same with the movement of purbeck marble from the quarries of. Dorset uh, on the coast of, of Purbeck um, up into London and then up as far as Durham, mm. you know, a few uh, a few examples of that particular material in Scotland. Um, so that's in the 13th century, you know, catches were being used to transport mm. these heavy stones around, around the British Isles, you know, up to Ireland and Scotland, like mm. I say. Um and then that fell out of fashion, and then Portland stone was used widely by Christopher Wren, as we know, in in London, and that was transported in vast quantities, you know, dodging mm. French privateers and uh, you know storms to build the city of London. And you know, people from Portland say that Portland gave its heart for London. Oh, really? And if you go there and you look at the great, you know, the very deep quarries, mm. um, you know, you can see what a crazy place it is for that. So, yeah. yeah.
2: One of the things I think is really nice about this topic is um, we were just talking about transporting stone to build with it elsewhere, but the sort of footprint of a place comes directly from the stone, right? So we're sitting sort of in the West country, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of the Cotswolds, very typical architecture is the limestone. And you can look at any chocolate box, uh cotswold village the beautiful like yellow stone and you know Mm -hmm. immediately where you are Mm -hmm. um up in the lake district everything's made of slate yes for the same reason um yeah i think i think it's lovely grounding in literally building from the rock that you're standing on and creating towns and villages and civilization really
1: yeah well it's just the the uh the land um contributing its personality to everything. Mm. You know, it makes your tea taste different no matter where you go in the country, doesn't it? So yeah. it's the same with vernacular architecture. Yeah, I mean, yeah. where we sat here in Froome, you know, we'd look out the back window and I can see this wall of forest marble and that and that wall was quarried beneath our feet. Every house in Froome has a cellar. Um, and that's how, you know, uh, how people would build their houses. They would dig a cellar, they would get this... Uh, building stone out that shears into fairly thin blocks is easily split Then they would build build their houses with it mm. as we're looking at on the on these walls here. <laughs> um, I think we've all, we've always worked very close to the land you mm. know even to the extent of digging you know digging river gravels out uh, from adjacent rivers in our early days to get the mix right so it matches what was there Mm. historically and uh, so you know we do spend a lot of time just trying to match and and analyze what um what the mortar was that glues stone together for Mm. example what the the plaster was the the nature of the lime wash Mm. all all that sort of thing yeah so we do keep a very close eye on the sort of local and the vernacular Mm. and the, the sort of Ecological, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, when you're working with traditional buildings, that that is the only way to approach it. You can't use modern materials in any mm. way. A
2: lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So when you approach a new project, then on day one, when you're looking at this, let's say, church that needs some restoration work, mm-hmm. what are the factors that you're considering and the questions that you're asking of the materials in front of you? Uh,
1: point one is to record, is to actually sit and record what what one's impressions are, um, and we will have a specification and a tender document from an architect or a surveyor. <clears throat> Excuse me, which we have priced, um, but you but you can't really understand a building just by taking a photo. You need to sit and sketch and get into that building. Mm. Um, so once you've done that, it gives you an understanding, and then you can see where the faults and the problems are So understanding understanding the underlying cause of the reason that parts of a building are failing mm. or decaying um is obviously the most important thing so you then take steps to mediate that and then you can get on with the actual repair of the of the problem area
2: Mm. it sounds like you also have to be a bit of a forensic stonemason in that you might be looking at a church that is hundreds of years old it's had multiple repairs already each person has come to it with a different solution or approach and you've then got to pick apart what have they done what have they used why did they do that and then what can we add, I suppose, or how can we fix it?
1: Absolutely. If it's, if it's pre-Victorian, if there's been a pre-Victorian intervention or extension or addition, it generally look after itself. As long as you know the gutters are maintained and the roof is cared for and ground levels are not getting too high and it's well drained and water is being managed, an old building will look after itself. But the moment you introduce modern materials, uh, that is that can lead to the death knell.
2: Um, and it was the Victorians that started doing that, wasn't so, it?
1: So, yeah, very much so. So uh, Victorian, uh, Victorians would repair the facades of structures by cladding them, re-cladding them in new stonework that would use uh, cast iron instead of blacksmith wrought iron. Mm. A blacksmith wrought iron will um, survive far longer. I think it has a high,
2: higher carbon content.
1: Was it a lower carbon content? Okay.
2: Hello, this is Anna from the future. Wrought iron actually has a lower carbon content than cast iron.
1: Uh, that allows it to survive better. Mm, so, okay. if you're looking at medieval ironwork, Georgian ironwork, it's generally of a good quality and won't corrode. But as we saw uh, on our earlier <gasps> visit to Castle Combe, mm. uh, it was the expansion of corroding Victorian <gasps> cast ironwork. That caused the f- led to the failure of this pinnacle that we were repairing. Mm. So this is a thing that's six eight feet tall. Um, that had a big uh, vertical fracture um, down the middle of the the, the square. Mm. Uh, yeah, the ra- whole
2: piece had split apart. Right, the whole
1: piece had split apart. The whole yeah. piece had split apart. Um, so that's one example of Victorian technology being used to repair something that had ultimately failed. Mm. And you know that. That was about to fail in a in a spectacular way, but we got there just in time to save it. That's you know. lucky. Um, and then just, you know, uh, uh, just after the First World War, we then have modern cements and renders coming in, and mo- modern cements and renders have done more to destroy old buildings than uh, bombing in the Second World War, really. You know, <laughs> really? In what way? You know. oh, well, old buildings need to breathe. So... Um, They don't have a dam-proof course, Um, so they just sit on a foundation in the ground. Moisture will be drawn up by osmosis through the wall. Uh, There will be an evaporation zone, uh, and a lime mortar will just deal with that. Mm. And it's sacrificial, so if it starts to fail, we just put some more lime mortar in. Um, But in the post-war period, post-World War period... Old buildings all over the country were repointed in really hard cement. It's impermeable. Moisture is not, you know, vapor transfer is not possible. Mm. Apart from uh, the moisture would come through the adjacent stonework. So it comes through the adjacent stonework. It draws uh, uh, salt crystals in solution through there. And then they, they crystallise just below the surface and cause the stone to decay.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: So the, you know, that that's one example. And also if you tank or cover an old building in cement render, then it, it's the same thing. Where's the moisture going? Mm. It's going to go inside. So yeah. you're going to render inside. So the moisture is going to go higher and higher. And yeah. Mm. So um, modern building techniques and methods have no place in an old building, period. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So what you're trying to do is mimic as closely as possible the original techniques. Uh,
1: absolutely. That's exactly
2: that's yeah. exactly what we're trying to do. Going back to your book again, um, you're telling stories basically about all of these buildings and yes. sort of the materials around them. Yes. Um, what was your favourite story from the book?
1: Uh, it's a ghost story. <laughs> yeah. So um, in a church that I do not name on purpose... <laughs> This is true. Why? Because uh, don't want people going there. Okay. Because everyone be <laughs> going. Oh, yeah, yeah, do okay. this thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were waiting for an architect. Um, this place, some places just have have a bit of a thing going on about them. we worked a lot of nights at the Roman Baths Ooh, cool. uh, in the winter, and it was just one on one occasion. It was just Andy, my business partner, and I. And there was no one else in there apart from the uh, the security guy because there was a snowstorm outside and we were stuck in there. So I thought, oh, this is you know this is great, but oh, it was so spooky and the rats were just you know, as big as nutmeg my whip it, but with shorter <laughs> shorter legs. I mean, these things were just hideous. And what, hideous.
2: swimming around in the baths? No, just
1: no, scurrying along along the edges. Oh, right. So, in the Roman baths, it's just a huge underground complex yeah, of yeah. tunnels that join one bit to another. Yeah. And it's, I mean, a great place to go exploring. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I was pleased to get home the following day. <laughs> Fair but enough. anyway, the, oh, yeah, uh, the, the church, um, we're waiting for the architect to come and uh, we just, you know, We'd finished our job, everything was tidied up, so we were just, like, kicking our heels a bit, going around looking at the monuments and such like. And um, now my colleague, lifted the drape over the pulpit, early Victorian pulpit, and under this drape on the pulpit, there, was, um, there were carved words. And the carved words in this Gothic script were, Take ye heed what ye hear." And uh Nell Nell saw this. Well you met Nell earlier. Mm. She's quite fizzy. You know, she can <laughs> she she's she, yeah, she's good like that. She she just she put her finger and she read out, take ye heed what ye hear. And there was this bang <gasps> on the door and then a rap behind it. And uh we you know, I need a of pants and uh <laughs> we, we ran outside to the other side <laughs> of the door, yeah and it was just sunlight and stillness and insects. There was nothing there at all. Mike, my, my colleague, ran around one side of the church. I ran around the other side, expecting to bump into the Lord of the Manor. Yeah, and he—he—he um, he, he, he was a single chap who lived in this ridiculously large mansion. Yeah. on his own medieval house, uh, just lived in his pajamas <laughs> and maybe tracky bots. You know, yeah, so yeah. we thought we were going to see him, but it was yeah. just nothing. And. Um, that's that, but it goes on. So I went back to meet the architects just about something else, and I got there early. I thought, right, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna see if I can do
2: this. And I
1: lifted the drape and I put my finger and I read out, yeah, nothing happened. Uh, so uh, we got this other little job to do, and I was doing it with my with Andy, my partner, and yeah. I said, look, let's let's just do this again and i read it i read out take ye heed what ye hear and exactly the same thing <gasps> happened again but it was a smaller rap it wasn't a big i'm gonna scare the pants off you yeah rap it was a proper small rap so uh yeah whoa yeah it's a week week i got married as well mm. <laughs> so <it's>, yeah <laughs> yeah and uh and that is complete. That, that happened. I'm yeah. Like, you know, it's no BS. I'm not making it up. Yeah. You know, it definitely happened. And there was a um, there was a monument adjacent to this door to this um, Jacobean knight mm. who uh, uh, um, he he was a knee, he was a knee. So you imagine a big black Japan, uh, Jacobean monument. And he's kneeling on one side and opposite him are two other kneeling figures of what well, his first wife and his second wife mm. Se- his first wife died in childbirth and behind piled up behind her in swaddling clothes are a heap literally a heap of infants oh my god and it says um, i forget the guy's name um, had he had issue so many children mm. all, all died of the plague that was rampant at that time yeah. so I you know I do feel that these places do store do store up some sort of energy mm. without sounding too cranky um, and <laughs> you know <laughs> dramatic mm. but you know uh, we spend all our time in these old places and you can't help but absorb a little bit of what's yeah. going on you don't just walk around in a superficial way we are staring and yeah, and seeing everything. You know, yeah, so.
2: that's something that's really struck me about spending the day with you is getting your eye in and noticing things on buildings that I had never noticed before, like you know things like the repairs or maybe different ages of the stone that you can see once you start looking for you mm. it, it starts jumping out at mm. you, um, but it's something. So there's a the permanence to stone, even though we've been talking about decay and repair. There's still yeah. a permanence to stone. Um, well, we could see that
1: in the Saxon Chapel in Bradford. Yeah, you know, that's that's the original stone. That's not been replaced by the Victorians. Mm. So,
2: and I suppose with these, we were talking earlier about not being especially religious, either of us. But um, the, I suppose the thinking behind it was that because this is a religious um, or a spiritual uh, building. It's designed to last and it's built to last. And so stone for them was the obvious choice.
1: Yeah. After the Black Death, (laughs) here we go full circle now. (laughs) The Black Death arrived in 1348 in Weymouth and a huge huge swathe of the population perished. Mm. Third of the population, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Quarter. Massive. And um, as a consequence of that... Um, those that survived were bequeathed huge amounts of money. Really? So what, what are they gonna do with this money? Um all of a sudden crafts certain types of craftspeople were in demand, so people got richer. Right. Communities pooled their resources to especially in the West Country, to build improvements to their church. Mm. So throughout the Gothic period, churches have been improved anyway but they needed to do one thing to improve the church and that one thing was to build a great west tower so the churches of somerset in particular are famous for the grandeur and uh, excess you mm. could say you know these are the one a big contribution to european culture our church towers and there's you know they're largely overlooked everyone is different mm. um so it's a consequence of the black death and we have this extraordinary architectural um addition to our um to our world mm. yeah
2: <clears throat> um so i've had a little go at um what do you call it stonemasonry stoneworking today but briefly. you've been working some stone yeah yeah, yeah. um it's been really really Fun. I was really getting into it and the rhythm of it and the feel of it. How hard you have to use your body, but I can see with as someone with no technique how having a technique <laughs> would improve matters. Right. Okay. Um, but I can see that it it it's.
1: We well, had some rhythm going. Yeah, by the end and of it, it didn't take yeah. long.
2: Um, and so if people have enjoyed listening to the podcast and thinking about a stone, what's the easiest way for someone to begin? Stoneworking?
1: working. Um, I suppose it's a question of where you live. Really, mm. uh, there aren't that many colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a college in London. It's a college in um, in Weymouth in Dorset. It's a college in Bath. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the ones I'm most familiar with, mm. and there are certain regional centres. Um,
2: but say, like. Yeah, say I just wanted to go home and, like, begin working with stone. Can I go and buy some chisels and a hammer from B&Q? No. Okay.
1: No, no. So all the tools are fairly specialist. Okay. But there is a uh, – you can buy a starter kit Yeah. Um, from from a shop in Bath called Avery Knights, cool. a very ancient and yeah. venerable institution. Nice. I mean, they sell every single type of – tool you will need mm-hmm. um, and you know modern building equipment as well mm. but they supply the college mm-hmm. um, but they do a really nice starter pack cool um, there is uh, an organisation called the Orton Trust which is um, in the Midlands in Stamford, I think oh, I'll have to look that up yeah, yeah the Orton <laughs> Trust um, do very good courses in simple you know simple masonry let cutting letters cutting forms yeah. you know if you have something in particular that you want to create mm. you know that's a yeah
2: excellent that's
1: the best way <laughs>
2: so if, or yeah um
1: if you go to the Isle of Portland there is a uh, school where you can just go for a weekend course cool. and it's you know it's on Portland it's uh, you know it's on the Dorset coast mm. it's very beautiful and yet nice. strange So I I would recommend the, you know, the Portland um, Stone Carving Centre.
2: Brilliant. Just heard an owl hooting outside. Really? Um, Yeah, I think so.
1: It wasn't my indigestion.
2: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, people have enjoyed hearing from you and all your ghost stories. Um, What's the title of the book? Where can we find it? And are you online doing stuff as well? Where can people find you?
1: Um... The Stonemason is published by John Murray's, um, available from all good booksellers who pay their tax. Absolutely. Um, I have a website, The Stonemason, it's just got some photos on it. Great. <laughs> um, and I don't know, uh, the Minerva Stone Conservation has a uh, website and i don't know and a facebook and twitter page so and i'm generally updating what we're up to cool that's the work that's the world we live in isn't it so yeah if you want to find if you want to come and say hello see where we're working and come and say hello
2: brilliant uh, yeah just google it it'll be there yeah exactly yeah. awesome well thanks so much for chatting to me
1: my pleasure what a treat thank you Anna. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So that was the fabulous Andrew Zeminski. Thanks so much to him for not only coming on the show, but also for hosting me for a day of stone surprises. Um, Check out his website and socials and also read the Stonemason book. It's totally awesome. If you've enjoyed hearing more about stone, you will love the book. That's all for this week. Don't forget to rate and review us um, on Apple Podcasts and a huge thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast by giving a one-time financial donation. If you're in the position to do that and you're enjoying the podcast, um, I'd be really grateful if you had the means to keep it running. Um, that would be really, really awesome. You can donate at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. You can always say hi to us online. We're at Twitter at Realtalk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, and on Instagram at HandmadePod. Thanks, as always, to Dave Shepherd for our awesome cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. That's everything for this week. Join me next week when I'll be talking to artist Helen Karnak about a material which is central to her practice, enamel. So until then, thanks for listening, take care, and I'll see you next time on Handmade.
0: Hello, Handmade listeners. I'm Barry Max Day. I'm Ben Vandervel. And we'd love you to listen to Worst Foot Forward, our podcast all about failure. Each week we are joined by a guest to discuss the world's worst something, from detective to invasion, train to horror movie we dive into humankind's darkest depths in search of the absolute pits. We've even had your very own Dr. Anna Porschyski on the show twice. In the world's worst material, she shared her innate hatred of graphene, and during our live show, she let loose on sea salt, and is now persona non grata in the town of Malden. On Worst Foot Forward, we've learned that conspiracy theorists think rocks aren't really hard, why one French physicist invaded the Channel Island of Sark, and how exactly to make a wasp gun. While also uncovering the railway station of the dead, the doctor who put goat balls into human scrotums, and the West End musical funded by Bird Poo. Subscribe to Worst Foot Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Check out our website, worstfootforwardpodcast.com, and join us for some fun-filled Zero Worship. Small details are big surfaces? Tight corners or odd shapes? Flat, rounded, textured, or tall? Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks, crannies,
1: edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from
0: Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue.
2: Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.